0: This is football. I'm Kevin Clark. Bonus episode. We are rolling here with these episodes. Louis Riddick is here. We talk about football culture. We talk about how to fix certain teams. He drops a pretty big nugget on Nick Saban and what made him great and their relationship and maybe potentially what his plans were uh, if he got a certain job a couple of years ago. This was fascinating. Um, I can't recommend this this interview enough. Ladies and gentlemen, Louis Riddick. Go to JetsPizza.com to learn more and find a location near you. Again, try Jets' signature eight-corner pizza and get $5 off with code 8SAVE. That's the number eight, S-A-V-E. Jets Pizza. Better because it has to be. All right, Louis Riddick, ESPN star. What's going on, brother? Um, I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm excited to do this because I think that there's... I, I don't know if there's ever been a better time to talk about how organizations are run how culture influences a franchise than right now with so many coaching openings and so many teams saying, do we have the guys? Should we have the guys? Should we overhaul what we're doing? There's so many teams, I don't want to say in crisis, but looking at themselves and being like, what, what are we right now? Um, I want to start with the, I want to start with the Eagles. I've never seen a tailspin like this. Some of the Mm -hmm. old heads in my mentions on Twitter are like all right. Well, I have eighty six jets, or you know, whatever. I'm like, we've seen this before. But in my football viewing lifetime, I've never seen a team that I thought had the talent to be ten and one. I've seen ten and one teams fold, but never seen a team I thought had the talent to be ten and one fold like this. Yeah. When you're in it, you've you've been a player, you've been mm-hmm. a scout, you've been an executive. When a mm-hmm. team has lost control, how does that feel on the inside? When you know there's nothing that you that that, that, that is solving the problem.
1: Yeah. Usually, when you can't stop it like that, it's usually such a multi-layered issue. Yep. And because if it was something real simple, as the players have said, you don't think they would have fixed it, you know, by (laughs) the fifth, seventh, eighth game, they would have already done that. And they tried certain things. And really what this really points to is the fact that there's probably some systemic, I was talking about this this morning, systemic issues that have always been there, have always been brewing under the surface and a lot of times what happens is when you have guys who are just, you know, exceedingly talented, they can still win in the NFL in spite of and go on some tremendous runs of success because these guys truly are unique individuals when you put them on the football field. But in order to for you to sustain and win at the highest level and withstand when you start having bumps in the road, and then maybe you have another bump in the road and then maybe some of those guys who are helping you win in spite of aren't available and they're not around the locker room and not a- they're not able to kind of like rally people together on the field. Then what happens is it starts to snowball. Then it really starts to snowball. And then next mm-hmm. thing you know, every, you know, as I said this morning, the dam starts to break. You yep. think you have a, your your finger in one hole and then another one pops. And then you're trying to, <laughs> right. and next thing you know, it just all this stuff starts cascading down. And I think, again, like I said, when that happens, though, one, it is a gut-wrenching, just nauseous feeling every day you walk into the facility because you're looking at someone, they're looking at you, people are looking at you like, are you the problem? You're looking at them like, are you right. the problem? And then sometimes you kind of know what the problem is and you wish you could do something about it, but you can't. You know if you're the problem. Long story short, well, that's actually, this is a pretty long story already. Yeah, please, please. But to summarize it, it's not something you can really fix mid-flight. It's hard to course-correct yeah. this thing. And usually what that leads to is the people at the very top, who sometimes are a part of the problem, have to really have some real brutal, brutal conversations. Because in Philadelphia, look, man, a lot of things have changed. Some things have remained the same. And these bumps just keep coming up. And so there's some smart people there. They, they, they kind of know where they probably need to start looking and start wondering, okay, like, why does this happen? What, what, what are some of the underlying issues? Can you tell, I, this
0: is the dumbest, most simple question ever, but I want you to, to kind of walk me through it because you know so much more than me. If you're in a facility and the team has a good culture versus a bad culture, yeah. Where does that show up? If you're
1: if you're hired as a PI uh, and somebody says, Does this team uh, have a good culture? That shows up where? Great, great question. Um, let's just start in the front office and in the coaching, in the coaching area, which a lot of times are like together. Like the offices like like in Philadelphia, if it's the same as what it was, since we're, you know, we're talking about their slide, you know, on the second floor of the facility on the football side of the building is one, it's one big giant square. Mm-hmm. and in the middle of it is a huge was a huge conference room that that where you had the the pro magnetic boards the the pro draft boards and where everyone you can have huge meetings and then around the outside were coaches and scouts pro scouts because since college scouts don't have offices when it's great doors are open it's easy mm-hmm. access people are walking back and forth you're constantly talking ball you're constantly looking for ways to get better there's no there's no hiding. There's no people on the phones. There's no people kind of looking like this out there. It's a very interactive, very cohesive. Guys are going down to lunch together. Guys are grabbing a workout around that four, five, six o'clock time period because after that, you still have about three, four, five more hours of work to do anyway mm-hmm. when it's a bad culture, doors are shut. People are walking by each other in the hallway. There's a lot of like heads down looking up like this. There's a lot of like always checking to see, well, who are they talking to? Why are you talking to him? Why are you talking to him? Why is he not talking to me? Why is he talking to him? Why is he at practice? People kind of like go watching practice, standing off in there. it, it's very similar to what you would think of bad culture versus good culture is like in any business. Mm-hmm. Oh, when it's good, there's a lot of love, sharing community to always try to, li- you're trying to lift people. Yep. When it's not, It's quite honestly, it's CYA. It's always, it's protect your ass time. It's always, well, let me just make sure that I get my message across and make sure I take care of mine because I'm not really worried about what's going on over here. Pat Riley calls that the disease of me, right? Where if the team does bad, but you think that you're doing good, you're happy. Team does good, but you don't feel like you're getting yours. You're pissed off. That's the difference. I love that.
0: It reminds me a little bit of uh, uh, an executive told me that when he was a young guy, his team lost a a really big uh, kind of pivotal franchise changing game late in the season. And he's walking through the hallway and there's an older scout next to him. And the doors are closed everywhere. And the scout says, this is bad news, man. This is bad news. And the other guy says, what do you mean? He's like, behind all those doors is a guy trying to get a new job because they know it's over. And they're calling their buddy and saying, hey, man, I don't know if
1: this is going to happen. Exactly Right. It happens everywhere, man. It happens everywhere. I can tell you this: the last days of Andy Reid in Philadelphia, yeah, were some of the most downtrodden, gut wrenching, just sad days in my professional career. Mm. You're talking about a guy who now, and even then, was an absolute is an absolute legend. A titan of the game. It was like a funeral there every single day, his last couple of weeks there. And it was just, you talk about doors shut and nobody talking, wow. Wow. I mean, yeah, but that—that's that's when you know it's clicking or it's not. I mean, it's really, it's no different if it was football, IBM, you know, Microsoft, yeah. ESPN, it doesn't matter. You know. If I may keep going down that road, um,
0: I've I was covering football the first year with the Andy, excuse me, my first year was Andy's last year in Philadelphia. So I was oh, okay. around, and I remember some of the mistakes that uh that Andy made, but still, this is an all-time Good. legend and all of that stuff. But sure. if you were to describe why and Andy is probably the second best coach of his generation, and but when all is said and done, he might win so many super bowls, he's the best, frankly. Um really? but it runs its course in Philadelphia. Why did that happen?
1: Well, look, it, it, it's it's a combination of things. Yeah. It's a combination of maybe for him staffing issues where he miscalculated. Yep. you know, Juan Castillo going to offensive line to you know coordinator is probably something he would never do again. I mean, that that just it just doesn't it's not going to work it's it's kind of like what Bill tried to do in New England. I mean, you, you can't you, you just can't do that not at this level you just can't get away with it um there's personnel misses um and usually those two things together when you're not able to help put players in good positions and then you have personnel misses and or team building misses in terms of philosophically how you put your team together like for instance the Year coming out of the player strike, the infamous dream team year that, <laughs> yeah. that, Vince, that Vince Young dubbed it, right? Yeah. That, that wasn't even anybody internally. That was Vince Young, I believe, who said that in the press conference. That when he signed at training camp up in Lehigh that day, he said this is kind of like a this is like a dream team. I mean, you've got Namdi Asama over here, Dominic Rogers Comarty, Cullen Jenkins, Jason Babbin. Like, damn, it's like a dream team. Yeah. And like then it was it just went poof just from there. So there was a lot of those different things. That all fed into what was really a pretty bad spiral, a bad season. And he really needed to reset after that. And, and he and he did. And he reset in a much different way, which was: you know what? I'm gonna get somebody in personnel who I trust. I'm gonna get somebody in personnel who I believe understand, like wants to deal with ball. I want to coach. I'll give him the particulars of philosophically what I believe in, in football, what the profiles look like in the players. I'll handle the coaching staff. He can handle the draft. We'll come together. We'll have great relationships with ownership. We're all moving in the same direction. We'll start fresh. And he was recharged. He went down to Kansas City, and he's never looked back. He didn't forget how to coach. Yep. He didn't forget the X's and O's, and he's brilliant. Brilliant. But the thing is, sometimes – kind of what we're talking about right here there's obviously some some miscues on his part as far as setting up the football operation whether it be you know his coaching staff how he arrived at certain decisions in terms of you know bringing in certain players in conjunction with the people who are making the decisions and personnel and then how you deploy them and utilize them right there's always there's always been you're never going to be perfect but man if he didn't course correct and get it right and sometimes it takes you having to get the hell out of your current environment and get to a new one in order to kind of like get out of the morass, so to speak. Right. Cause you just can't see yeah. what the hell's going on right in front of you. Uh, switching gears, you know, Bill Belichick. Well,
0: you, you, you played under him, you know what he likes to do. I gotta be honest. I'm more excited with the prospect of him just going back to his roots and coaching ball in a place like Dallas in a place like Los Angeles, if you wanted to inherit that roster, that roster is going to go through some tough times cap wise, but at least you have yep. the quarterback. Yep. I feel like that would be a better future for him to go into Atlanta, getting the, the skeleton key to the entire building, putting his guys in trying to install the Patriot way. If you yeah. were, if if Bill called you and said, Lewis, what, what do I do? Help me be, be my, be my advisor here. What would you say it is time for Bill Belichick to do?
1: Yeah, I think, I think you're you're right on the right path. I think he needs a setup like he had when Scott Pioli was with him in New yeah. England. A guy who he trusts. Yes. A guy who talks ball the same way as far as we're not collecting talent, we're building a team. What is the hierarchy? What are the positions? What are the position profiles physically, mentally, socially? How do we value free? How do we look at free agency? How do we look at the draft in terms of valuing both free agents and draftable players? How do we set up the board? How are we going to select these players? And then you just kind of like let Bill then go to work, which is developing the guys mentally, developing physical toughness and setting up that part of it, which really is the most important part, right? What I always call development and utilization. That's always the most important. So that's where, but that's where his real focus is. He's never going to just not be involved in the first two – well, really the second leg of it all, which is really, you know, what I call like valuation and selection, really putting the value on a guy and then figuring out how to select them either in the draft or through free agency. The information gathering part, obviously that's during the season anyway. That's when that stuff is happening. You just need to let him focus. But he's never just going to totally pull back from the other stuff, but he needs someone who that's who's his dude. Right. So he'll go and we, and where he's just not like you know drafting guys like Cole Strange way <laughs> over drafting him, although Cole's a good player. Like yeah, of course. He don't I don't know if he has any like anybody who will do that who will challenge him at this point. Cause I mean, like like Bill's like quote unquote, like like Bill's football royalty, you think scouts in New England are gonna go like Bill, that's dumb. Right. No. But and if he does that, look like, the dude is a tactical genius. There's just yep. no other way around. It. Being around Belichick
0: and Saban, what was the – is there a moment where – and I think about this a lot, like some of the Alabama guys talk about, specifically with Saban, where they'll teach him either a quarterback or receiver will teach them something about defensive back leverage in the middle of a practice where they'll go like, holy crap, in a million years I never would have thought about that or I never would have thought about how to throw in double coverage if this rule happens or whatever. Can you tell me, just being with those guys, and, and either Saban or Belichick – under t- tell me something that they taught you specific thing about football that just blew your
1: mind well i, I for me it was probably how to play the game with your eyes mm. while keeping your body calm okay mm. so meaning ball snapped mm-hmm. where do your eyes go what is the sequence all that happens within two and a half seconds to where you're gathering so much information, but you're not getting all helter skelter. And then you can get to where you need to get to, whether that means entering into the run front as a safety in this particular case, or you can get the correct quote unquote pattern match that you need in what they called their zone man matchup concepts in the back end. And it was, it wasn't just, you know, you have to be back down over here, back down over here. Because, you know, sometimes when I first got there, it kind of looked like that for me, you know. And I remember Nick used to be like, what the hell are you doing? (laughs) He would just be like, you don't don't have to turn your whole body and look over here and turn. He said, look, just do this. Just just calm down and let's go like this. All right, ready? Like, so when you're playing cover two, right, and you're a half field safety. Okay, he goes, this is what I want you to do. I want you to set up at about 12 yards. I want you to be about two yards outside the hash or a yard outside the hash, right? the pro hash he goes i want you he goes i want you to look back you know to your right so i was the right safety we played left and right he goes i want you to look back there he goes i want you to imagine three yards from the top of the numbers okay i want you to drive on a 45 degree angle he goes i want you to take three to four hard drive steps He goes i promise you with your height and your weight you are going to get right where you need to be three yards top of the numbers he goes then from there square up he goes and as you drive don't look at the landmark as you drive, I want you to just take your head and look out at the number one wide receiver. If he's blocking, if you see him stalk block, cut it off instantly because it's probably going to be run. And square up quickly so you then enter into the run front. If you see him trying to avoid, keep driving to that landmark, square up, and go. So you're going from the ball, check one, get in your pedal, back to the ball, and he goes and Then then react from there. And, like, I was sitting there going, I was never told this crap before. <laughs> You know I'm just you know when they play cover too I'm just sitting there going I've got half the field that safety's got to have let me just drop back here and try and figure out what the hell's going on So it was it was this it was the detail and the sequence by which you were supposed to play with detail to where and they dr- we drilled it every day to the point where it was so second nature by the time you got to the game that then you could really drill down on certain tendencies That really allowed. So, really, what I'm getting at is this: it's the mental part of the game, because one thing that those two guys couldn't take was stupid football. Mm -hmm. It would take lesser athletes, but guys who would do it right all the time. They didn't need guys who could do it some of the time, and they used to say it all the time: "If you aren't consistent and you're dumb and you make mistakes, you will not play for me." And one of the greatest compliments Bill ever gave me: I went up there for a Sports Center segment or for a training camp special. About, I don't know, seven, six, seven years ago. And we were up in Foxborough. And we're, you know, we're, our set is set up over there. And I see them out there on the field and they're all practicing and stuff. And I'm just like, you know, and they're asking me, hey, you're going to go say hi to Bill. I'm like, yeah, just let him be, let him do his thing. Yeah. And Stacey James comes over, who wanted, you know, I guess they're, yeah. and he grabs me and he goes, Bill wants to see you. And there, everybody was like, ooh, what does he want to say? And I went out to the field and he said, you know why I liked you? Because you were smart and you were tough, and you did it the right way. And he goes, and I'll take those players any day of the week. Smart, tough football players. And so really, I mean, that's not a sexy answer to your question. No. But what great. it is, it's why the Patriots won six Super Bowls and played in nine. And why Alabama's won a trillion. There you go. You're right. Like You're saving it. in him doing it. That's right. Yeah, and, they, and here's the, the same thing. thing. Dude, they wouldn't let you off the hook if you didn't do it exactly that way. They would not let you off the hook. Why should you bet with
0: Caesars Sportsbook? Two words, Caesars Rewards. Every bet brings you closer to the types of benefits only Caesars can offer. Hotel stays, VIP experiences, sports and concert tickets, and more. It's not just an app, it's an empire. 21 and up must be physically present in Arizona, Colorado, Illinois, Indiana, Iowa, Kansas, Louisiana, Maryland, Massachusetts, Michigan, Nevada, New Jersey, New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Wyoming, or Washington, D.C. Sports betting is void in Georgia, Hawaii, Utah, and other states where prohibited. Know when to stop before you start. Gambling problem? Illinois, Maryland, New Jersey, Ohio, Tennessee, Virginia, West Virginia, Pennsylvania, affiliated with Harris Philadelphia. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem? Crisis counseling and referral services can be accessed by calling 1-800-GAMBLER, 1-800-426-2537. Or Maryland, visit mdgamblinghelp.org. Or West Virginia, visit 1-800-GAMBLER.net. Arizona, call 1-800-NEXT-STEP. Colorado, DC, Nevada, Wyoming, Kansas, affiliated with Kansas Crossing Casino, call 1-800-522-4700. call 1-800-9-WITH-IT. Iowa, call 1-800-BETS-OFF. Louisiana, call 1-877-770-STOP. Licensed through Horseshoe, Bozier City, and Harris, New Orleans. Massachusetts, if you or a loved one is experiencing problems with gambling, please call 1-800-327-5050 or visit gamblinghelplinema.org for 24-7 support. Michigan, call 1-800-270-7117. New York, call 1-877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY. It's only a
1: kick, a jump, a block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle, a run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas.
0: I got a lot of questions over the weekend because I wrote a Dan Campbell piece a couple of years ago that was making the rounds about how much he preaches culture, lives culture, or understands what culture is supposed to mean and and the buy-in, not just managing up, managing down. Why assistants mm-hmm. love coaching for him. Why mm-hmm. players love playing for those assistants. All of those things. The people were saying to me, okay, you spend all this time with Dan Campbell if you were, and these are all teams, uh, fans of teams with, with openings. like How do you find the next Dan Campbell? who's mm-hmm. actually, because everybody says they're a culture guy, nobody yeah. builds your life around it. Mm-hmm. What would you look for if you're a GM and you're saying okay, this guy's all about culture. How do you scout that when you haven't
1: been in a building with somebody? You know, you just kind of mentioned it and we talked about this on TV today. I think Dominic Foxworth brought it up and he put it in exactly the same words that you just did. And everybody will, I think ultimately they're looking for this but they don't really know how to articulate it And and Fox kind of like You articulated it for me today and you just repeated it. The guy who can manage up and manage down, meaning he can develop relationships with whether it's a singular owner, a group of owners, and he can manage their expectations. He can manage them in terms of giving them the kind of information that they need to feel comfortable with the direction that the team is going. He can communicate with them about what he needs if there's some kind of, you know, if there's some kind of defect in terms of the resources or rather they're lacking something in terms of the resources and he can do it in such a way that is not threatening to them. Mm -hmm. It's not, you know, abrasive to them. Something that really makes them feel as though, Hey, look, we're a part of this too. Even though as owners, we're naturally part of it. He makes us feel like, you know, like we really are helping win on game day and not everybody can do that. Some coaches hate talking to owners. Some coaches just don't even want to deal with the owners. Yeah, you know they just want to be like, look, just, just, you know, just give us the money and we'll deal with it. We'll just kind of deal with you like later when we have to. And then there's also the guy though who then establishes his credibility, his competency, and positively impacts people below him. The guys who are his coordinators, his position coaches, his you know quality control people, strength staff, equipment staff, video staff, all of those guys, and he touches all of them every day. And all of them feel like if they don't do their job, they somehow are going to be the weak link towards achieving the kind of goals that is set forth by that head coach. And not in a threatening way, again. Mm -hmm. It's in a way where they take ownership of their respective area. And it's because, you know, every day or as much as they possibly can, this guy has those relationships and developing those relationships all the time. And, you know, that's where you have to go when you're looking for that dude. Like, every coach is going to tell you, well, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, of course I'm a relationship guy. Of course I'm a character Of course. You got to dig. You got to dig. You got to trust your resources as far as being able to tap into people who say, yeah, he does do that. Yeah, he does have the ability to manage up, manage, down, touch every single facet of the football operation, make everybody feel as though they are just as important as the next guy. He doesn't try to, like, you know, establish tiers and make sure that certain people – You stay down here, you don't deserve these privileges, you don't deserve access to this, you don't deserve to speak to me in the hallway, that kind of stuff. You know, like I've been places where the people who were in charge kept certain low-level employees when we went on the road, like when you go like to the NFL Scouting Combine at one hotel. Yeah. And then everyone else who was like a higher level stayed at a better, different hotel. I mean, it's like What do you think that's doing to people? You're telling them you're not quite as good as me. Mm -hmm. You're not quite as important as me. And if I ever got wind of that kind of crap, that people allowed that kind of crap, if I was an owner and was looking for a coach or looking for a GM, instantly I'm going, we can stop here. You can leave. Because I've seen that happen. I've seen what that does to culture. And then, I mean, he looks like, I'll tell you what, in Detroit – it looks like every single person would run through a wall for Dune for Dan Campbell. They really and all the former players that he has on his mm-hmm. staff, like some people feel like former players aren't great communicators, especially good former players because they can't really explain how they were they were good and they get frustrated and they don't have patience and all. I mean, Aaron Glenn was a badass. Mm-hmm. He's teaching those guys. He's teaching a group of people who in the secondary aren't always the most talented. Mark Brunel, the work he has done with Jared mm-hmm. Goff is out of sight. Mm-hmm. Out of sight. And I played against Mark Brunel, so I know how good he was. Tip your cap to Dan. Tip your cap to Brad Holmes. Tip your cap to ownership group. They have all – he has been respond- – well, I, I mean, it's not just him alone. But man, that all for one, one for all, you can call it us against the world, whatever you mm-hmm. want to call it. He has made people believe that their job is just as important as the next person's. It's just as important as his, just as important as any. And, and that is a great feeling, man. That's a great feeling. And those are the kind of things, I'll tell you what, I would search far and wide and stay up 24 hours a day if I'm on the head coach uh, hiring cycle to try and find that person yeah. who people tell me that's who they are. Mm-hmm. Authentic, and that's hard. It's really hard. It's hard to get that info, but right. but that's the, those are the rules, man.
0: Just to correct you, I didn't see Dominic this morning, but I do know he's one of my good friends. I do know I delivered the point way better than he did. It, I was much, but whenever <laughs> I did, I just crushed him on it. and I want it. So just just wanted to get that out there on record that I did say, better well, than it, our,
1: our show this morning on Get Up was really probably one of the deepest conversations. No, I saw. About- I saw a bit, yeah. Did you? It was one of the best conversations I've had in. Eleven years of working
0: there. Yeah, no, I loved it. I saw I saw the stuff on social media this morning. It was absolutely awesome. It was it was great, and you guys together were phenomenal. And I, has been on the show. He's he's amazing, and that's obviously why I wanted to get to get you on the show. Um, all right, let's do some some real quick hits before we get you out of here. Number
1: one, Chicago Bears do what? Should do what? I think right now, I I think you're already seeing where they're where they're going with this. I think they should continue to build out around Justin. They obviously have said, look. Luke Getzey and the offensive staff just were not clicking with him, or we, or they're either saying that, or they're just saying, "Look, you're just not going to click with anybody, and your competency is in question, and that's why they dismissed everybody." Mm-hmm. I'm I'm led to believe that Justin showed enough flashes to where they feel as though, "Look, if we get people who are better suited to, you know, pulling the best out of him, we're going to take off and we're we're going to go." So I think they should keep him. Uh, int- I, I I could go.
0: Either way on that, but I think that's an interesting perspective. I love asking this question. You don't have to answer it. Most dysfunctional thing you saw in the Daniel Snyder era being on the inside.
1: Uh, um, <laughs> you know what? When I, when I talked about that whole everybody pulling in the same direction. Yeah.
0: <laughs>
1: no it it was it was. It, it, it was just not it was not cohesive it just I, wasn't and in that you I, I say this all the time look it, it's hard enough to win because of everything going the right way it's impossible to sustain winning be, in spite of and they, we were having to do that on an everyday basis there i can only imagine i asked
0: ryan fitzpatrick that question and he said that uh he couldn't rehab there when he broke his hip because uh the DEA raided the facility the day he came in. So everybody's got a different answer for the Daniel Snyder era. All right. We do one thing that everybody uh everybody has to answer. It's called badasses. You already mentioned Aaron Glenn, but it's the biggest badass you've ever been around in football. That could be a teammate uh when you were a player, that could be someone in the front office. That could be a coach that you were on staff with when you were when you're a front office guy, a scout. Doesn't matter. The biggest badass Lewis Riddick has ever been around in football
1: is who? I'll give you a coach and a player. Please. I'll start with the player. The biggest badass I was ever around as a player was a teammate of mine, the late Eric Turner. Mm. When we were in Cleveland together, we came out in the same draft class in 1991. He was the second overall pick that Belichick took in Cleveland as a safety. I watched Eric Turner hit people. So I mean, when he hit people, they like I think everything exploded inside of them. And he was the nicest guy. Yeah, like he, him and my mom were close. Every time we went on the road, I mean. He he had the biggest widest Hollywood L A smile where he was from, but when you talk about on the field, you talk about being a badass. Yeah, Et as we called him, didn't smoke. He didn't drink. He yeah. didn't curse. I've never seen somebody intimidate people with just his physical presence the way he did. Mm-hmm. And the same age, and he felt like he was five six years older than me. Mm-hmm. Just because he just had that presence. Badass mm-hmm. as a coach, there's no doubt. There's no doubt it was saving because when when we were in Cleveland, I was like, this guy went from having me feel as though I wanted to quit football Mm -hmm. because of how hard he was on me to the next thing, you know, what I didn't realize was through all that fire, he was testing me to see if he could trust me to go to Mm -hmm. bat for me. And then when I earned it, it was unbelievable. Like, the, he, it just, it flipped. And it was one of those things where, like, that is so, that's so liberating as a player to know that someone who's so knowledgeable like that, who, you know, like when you go out on the football field, if you just do what he tells you, you're probably going to win. Mm-hmm. When you lose, it's because you didn't do something he told you. And now, you know, when I was going to, um, when I was interviewing to be the GM of the New York Giants and I thought I was damn close to getting it, I called Nick and I asked him, would you come back to pro football and coach? And he said, just get the job first and we'll talk. That was going to be the guy who I was going to tell Giants ownership, you got to do everything you can to get him back to college, football, to pro football. Because I respected him that much. Respected him that much. And you think. I agree largely
0: with what I think. I know what you're about to say. You think he could have been a success in the right situation because he said he said he went to college back to college because he couldn't control his own destiny. He didn't get the quarterback thing right because the doctor stuff. That's right. But I think in the with with a little bit of help, a little no, bit of no. momentum, he
1: would have gone on a run, Lewis. If 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 Nick Saban gets Drew Brees instead of Dante Culpepper in Miami, he probably goes on a run and wins multiple titles. Yeah, but his doctors told him. No, nah, we shouldn't do this. Drew goes to New Orleans. The rest is history. But for the to go to the Giants, one of the most storied franchises of all time in New York. I like I ain't gonna speak for him. And this would be this is pretty big for me to say, but considering the fact that he told me, he said, look, just get the job and then we'll talk. And that's all he said. He didn't say no.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Can you imagine what that would have been like for me? How cool that would have been. Okay. So, yeah, Nick Nick is a certified badass. Certified. I've watched him call games, dude, with no play sheet. Nothing. Mm-hmm. And he is just making adjustments. It's all in his head. He knows what's happening. Those The days of the big giant play calling menu. Yep. Man. He's legit. He deserves everything that people say about him right now as being the greatest of all time.
0: Obviously, the best badasses answer we've had this season, Lewis Riddick, ESPN, watch him. I mean, they, they, as you mentioned, you alluded to earlier, the Get Up segment, one of the best things I saw on football television this year. Thank you so much for going. This is football, man.
1: Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.